Well, good morning, fellowship. Good to see you. Um, so the original plan for this five-week series on apologetics was it was going to kind of culminate to an ending in week five with a sermon entitled Conversations That Count. And the plan was that we would take our equipping, our training, our knowledge that we've added over these prior four weeks and, and get into, now how do, we, how do we make this work in the field? How does this all apply to being able to initiate a conversation with someone who's yet, to become a, who's yet to become a believer in Christ? And how can we lead some of this training and some of this new confidence we have to initiate that conversation, to reach out your hand and start a conversation with someone that can have eternal impact? That was planned for week five. But uh, we moved it up to week three for a reason. Uh, I desperately wanted to share the man who led me to the Lord with you because there's honestly no better person that I could share with you. There's no better guest speaker I could bring in to speak to this um, than Rod Sawatsky. He had to be here this week instead of week five because he's a, he's a chaplain for two different professional sports teams. And uh, one of those teams goes into season in a couple weeks and so their bubble uh, so to speak, begins, and he's got to be in a pretty contained quarantine, moving from house to stadium to house to stadium to protect the spread of COVID. Um, so now we're doing week five and week three, with your permission, and we'll pick up next week where we left off last week. Um, but I want to share with you a man who's had an incredible amount of impact in my life. Uh, I think we're all grateful for the person that led us to the Lord. I feel that very deeply, and I remember uh, with great clarity the holy ground that was Barron's Court, a cafeteria at the University of Calgary, uh, to where we left uh, from playing a game of pickup basketball to go grab a cup of coffee, and 15 minutes later, uh, after hearing the gospel for the first time, my head was bowed, and I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I discovered after becoming a Christian that the man who led me to the Lord is a pretty exceptional dude. Um, he has led not only me to Christ, but this is no underestimation, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to Christ. His level of confidence to wade into these waters is high. His level of aptitude and, and just comfort to initiate spiritual conversations is incredible. And to this day, I know of no one better at the discussion that we're gonna have this morning than Rod Sawatsky. So would you join me in welcoming him to the stage of Fellowship Bible Church? Love you. Whew. I love that there's no pressure after an introduction like that. <laughs> and that uh, I, I actually do count it an incredible privilege to be here, uh, really. And that, you know, I, I know speakers get up and that's what they're supposed to say, but that is, uh, it's a joy for me to be here. And um, a, a couple of uh, housekeeping duties for me, because you don't know me and, and, and I've got a few things going on. So to explain sort of how I preach or counsel, depending on the setting, um, it's sort of like the, the artist, if you've seen them, uh, there's a fellow that is often in New York, he, he starts playing music, he's got a four by eight sheet uh, that is his canvas and he starts throwing paint and, and just, it looks kind of wild, there's a splotch here and a splotch there and then he takes a brush and he kind of draws a few lines and all of a sudden instead of just chaos it, it's actually a picture of Elvis and and that's going to be a little bit of how it is today if it seems like I'm over in left field a little bit or over here I, I promise Holy Spirit guide me we will we will draw it to a conclusion and I trust it'll land here um, I've also promised a close friend of mine that when I'm up front and on the microphone that I would 
So I had promised that that voice would come out, so there it is. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I also promised to wear the sumo suit so socks. Um, so I'm, I've done all of the things I was asked to do, all the housekeeping. Um, but I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And let's start, and I'm, I'm going to place in front of you, in your mind's eye, a life poem that I abide by, that I'm going to challenge you with. It goes like this. If you always think the way you've always thought, then you will always feel the way you've always felt. And if you always feel the way you've always felt, then you will always do what you've always done. And if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get exactly what you've always gotten. If there is no change, there is no change. But it's not what you think here that matters. It's what you think here, what you believe to be true. And ultimately, the most powerful thing that you need to think right about is, who is God? And if you think clearly and right about the God that you know or, and love or haven't met yet, but you think clearly, then you will think right about lots of things. My challenge this morning is I'm going to try and tweak a bit of the thinking that you have on having conversations that count. How do these conversations that matter so much, how, how do they go? How do they begin? What, what needs to be there? And, and at the end, we're going to talk through a bit of, well, I'm going to coach you on, on, on how to share the gospel. But I want to start with fellowship first. And so this next, however many minutes it's going to be, it's going to feel a bit like a drink of water from a fire hose. So I figure you can buckle your chin strap, turn your Bibles, and, and get over to 1 Samuel 23. We're going to talk about a, a conversation. I'm going to show you a few things once we read it. But as you're turning there, I'm going to tell you, if you, you, hadn't read the Bible, if you don't read the Bible very much, it, it'll start a bit like a Dr. Seuss book with some of the names. And yet there's some critical piece in here that I want to use as a starter kit for how... An, how to have conversations, what matters. So let me read for you 1 Samuel 23, starting at verse 14. And the background to this story is that David was going to be king. He had been prophesied to be king. David was a superhero. He was a great musician. He was a great warrior. He was a great uh, herdsman and a protector of animals. He, he was good looking. I mean, the guy just sort of had it all. And his life and his future looked great. And then all of a sudden it went sideways and probably more difficult than your life going sideways. David's life was at risk and he, the king wanted to kill him. That's a pretty bad slide. So let me read for you what goes on and then we're going to learn a bit about fellowship and conversation first. So it says this, David stayed in the wilderness and the strongholds in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I'll be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. What do I want you to see here? 
what I trust God wants you to see in terms of conversation and intentionality, relationship and love. See, David is hiding and no one can find him. No one. Not the king and his armies. I'm sure there's a ransom out there. People are searching for David to get on the good side of the king. No one can find him. And yet Jonathan goes straight to him. What does that have to do with you? I think everything, actually. I mean, think about it. Right now, you got your Sunday go to meet and best on, right? You put on your churchy face. You have a big fight with your family on the way to the parking lot. You get out, and then they go, hey, how you doing, Sally? And you go, oh, I'm doing great. How you doing? Great. <laughs> yeah, doing great. We live in a world where people hide. We really do. You put your social media best up. You, you go into, for, in, into relationship, which you desperately want is to be seen, which you desperately want is to be known, to get out from underneath the fear and the guilt and the shame and the insecurity. But we're so afraid and we don't have relationship and we don't have the kind of friendship and fellowship that God designed the church to have for brothers and sisters in Christ to have, how people are wired we're wired to know God and we're wired to be in fellowship. And I'm gonna tell you, this illustration is massive because I want you for the rest of your life to be both David and Jonathan. Jonathan knows David. What's it like to know a friend? What's it like to have somebody know you, really know you and like you anyway? I'm just saying, what's that value? priceless. David lets Jonathan in. Jonathan goes straight to David and they just have a couple of wobbly pops. Is everything will be, you know, it'll be fine in the morning. Let's watch the game. And then, no. Somebody else can have that conversation. Jonathan goes to David and he helps him find strength in God. And he goes, this is who God is. And this is what he said. And this is true. And you can remember it. And then they have a covenant. They make a covenant. They go, I'm with you, heart and soul. David lets him in. Jonathan is there. They get together. They fellowship. Truth is spoken intentionally. And then Jonathan goes back to his comfy place. And David's still in the desert as if. Nothing's changed. And everything has changed. Everything Somebody cares. Somebody knows. Somebody is with me. Isn't that what we need? We need to know that God will never leave us nor forsake us, but we need a little bit of human touch, a little bit of human relationship that reflects our Father. We need to start that in the fellowship. And so if you want to have a conversation that counts, pardon me, sound guy, then you better decide to be David and Jonathan. Be vulnerable and be intentional and speak about stuff that matters. So that leads me into taking a look at the Jesus that we know. We're going to look in the, Old, in the New Testament now, and there's a, there's a passage in John 4. So I want you to turn to John 4. We're going to read a lengthy passage. But before I start to read, I want you to ask yourself this question. What are the conversations that I can have with others that other people will not have or can't have? 
that bring life? How, how did Jesus engage with people? And, and all of his stories have a, a similar pursuit and intentionality, but let's read this long passage in John, and I'm gonna point some things out. We're gonna start in verse seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to get food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I don't have to get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. His worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And then the disciples come back. They're surprised. He's talking to this woman. No one asks, what are you doing with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And eventually a bunch of them come to faith and he's there a few more days and more people come to faith. What do I want to draw out of this passage? Well, there's a bunch of stuff, but I want you to understand Jesus meets the person where they're at. No judgment. Love, incredible love, but he goes to where their felt need is and calls us to do the same. How do you, how do you engage with the world that we're in? Well, there, there's a few things. And before I jump into this, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just rattle through some things you know, and then I'm gonna come back to this because I think I wanna do that in this order, in this service. It goes like this. If, if, if you were to answer the question, what is the greatest commandment? It's the same question people quizzing Jesus. What was the answer? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and, and, because that one's easy, isn't it? It's private, secretive, kind of, if you want it to be. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That, that gets a little more messy, doesn't it? It's a little harder to do. They're not perfect like God. But God says, you got to love, not act like a love, not talk about love. You actually have to love people and you have to love me and you got to let me love you. Then the great commission, go therefore into all nations, making disciples, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the earth. He doesn't leave us alone. You know there's a passage where, and it talks all the way through the New Testament where Jesus filled with the Spirit goes and does something. Well, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I jumped ahead to that because I want you to understand something. All of those commands, we can see Jesus do here but he does it with grace and mercy and we're asked as his children to jump into this story so look what jesus does her felt need she comes to water when does she come at noon you probably how many have gone to church much of your life or all of your life put your hand up okay so there's a bunch of you have been here a long time heard a lot of sermons i'd like you to listen again with your heart not his story up here. The story from here. She comes at noon. She's scared. She has guilt and fear and broken hope. And this man surprises her with an intentional conversation. And he says, will you give me a drink? And then he flavors it. He salts the conversation. He said, if you really knew who's asking you, you'd ask for living water. And at first, her felt need is this thing that says, man, this is the hardest thing in my life. Got to go to water. I'm alone. I got to come in the heat. I got to hide, go through the back alley. But that's not where he's going. He's going, I want to engage with you. I want to hear a bit of your story. I'm going to tell you that there's more to this life and then he zeroes in on her heart because he sees her. I mean, really, isn't that what we want? We want to be seen, but we're desperate that no one sees us. We're in this crazy push you, pull me. I want people to know me, and yet what if they really knew me? And the God of the universe knows everything about you, and he loves you. And Jesus goes, go get your husband. Can you imagine the sting in that moment? Can you imagine that momentary fear, guilt, shame cascading down on this woman's heart, but she looks at him and there is no condemnation and she doesn't know what to do. She can't lie. And so she simply says, I have no husband. He goes, I know you. You've had five husbands. The one you're with is not your husband. I know you and I do not condemn you. I know you. I have something better for you. I want to dig you out of this terrible hiddenness. 
And so, I'm having trouble reading. I don't know if that happens to your eyes when they get all wet, but... He says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five and the man you now have is not your husband. What you just said is true. And what does she do? She does what the people I engage with now do when we start to get close to the heart. She tries to think about the most religious, spiritual words she can think of because she doesn't have all the right words. She doesn't know how to ask the right questions. And so she simply goes, oh, well, I see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped here or there. People talk like that, don't they? They go, oh, I'm spiritual. I, uh, you know, I think about, you know, you got to do good for, you know, then, you, then, it's, then it's good. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, you know, my, my grandma went to church. Um, hey, uh, you know, isn't there, they, they, they reach, they, they grasp for some kind of spiritual conversation because they know this matters. They don't have the words and Jesus just wades in. And he takes, he takes her words. He doesn't mock her. He goes, oh man, you know what? I see where you're going with this, but let me tell you, it's not how you see it. And he, and he takes her words and then guides her into the truth, a spiritual journey. And he starts talking about real worshipers. And can you see how in his way, he's including her. He's letting her be part, really. He says, you guys worship here, you worship there, but really there's a time coming when the true worshipers are gonna worship this way. She finally remembers what she thinks is the most important moment. She goes, oh yeah, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. He'll guide us. And then Jesus takes it where the conversation was intended from the first. And he goes, the one you're speaking about, I'm he. And now, like I did with Mike and hundreds, maybe thousands of other people, we're at the place where it needs to go. You're having a conversation about Jesus. And what happens to this woman when she hears the Jesus? Not, not the church, not the religion, not a bunch of other trappings and do's and don'ts. What the conversation is about a relationship with God through Jesus. And she gets transformed. There is no crazier moment than when someone comes to faith in Christ. I love that it says, then leaving her water jar... The very thing she came to get. She thought her greatest need was this water. She's going to be thirsty later. And now she's interrupted. She leaves her water jar and she sprints into town. And the same person that was afraid to be seen, to be known, to be even looked at, is running down the street. You got to see the one that sees me. You got to meet the man who knew everything about me. And they could tell by her face there was no condemnation. (laughs) He saw her, all of her, and he redeemed her. And she was so transformed that the village had to come and see you look at his stories, Jesus is constantly bringing the felt need 
into a conversation to the place where it's about him. I, I, I've got to say, if in the next little bit I, I share, and I don't know what's going to come, I don't follow the notes too well, but anyone that has come to Christ across the table for me, like Mike, the Holy Spirit did all the work. God gets all the glory. I'm just a servant. However, I'm an obedient child. I'm willing to get into a conversation that might be hard. And that's what God calls us to. He calls us the most important message you can give. I know you'd get it right on a test. I see all the churches in here, right? You guys, you know, the gospel, that would be the answer. Jesus, that would be the first answer. The gospel is what we're about. And, and you have to know your apologetics. I'm going to tell you straight up that, that what Mike is teaching, get it down cold. I seem like a simple man compared to him, but I, I'm, I'm actually fairly robust in apologetics, but they rarely come up. I have confidence because I know what I believe in and whom I believe and who's in me, but most objections to the gospel or to church or to a relationship with God are not intellectual. They're heart things because most people, despite their appearances, are hurt and lost they want to be seen. They're afraid to be seen. There's this desire in them for meaning and purpose and hope and forgiveness. See, <clears throat> we've all been designed for that relationship. Every human being that God has created, which is all of them, want that. <laughs> but if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to have unintentional, pardon me, conversation constantly. Let me jump into the gospel for a moment, simply. And as I go through this, I want you to remember that Mike had said at one of his sermons that when you do and you, you understand apologetics, when you get them cold, they, they, they help in lots of ways. But one of the things that knowing your apologetics is it gives you confidence for your faith. True faith, it's a true story. The gospel, if you know it really well, it is for the sake of the salvation of others. The spirit will do the work, but you've got to be part of the story. But you know what else it does? It will grow your faith and keep it fresh. I'm a 56-year-old man and I still get excited about sharing my faith. I'm, I've been doing this a long time and it always encourages me and shocks me when within minutes on a plane on the way down, a man who's never seen me starts to share about his son having died and his spiritual journey or on a golf course to meet a guy and to have a conversation and suddenly there's this depth and I won't get into it because he may have come today. I don't know. I hope he's here. But he shares something from his heart and I go, that's awesome and shocking. But there's a trust there. You know why? Because I actually love him. 
even though I hardly know him, because my father loves him. And it, it's that heart attitude that stays fresh when you remember the gospel. So let's go. God loves you. Every time you share that with someone, you think of the scripture. I hope some of this stuff is memorized. And if not, I'll tell you in a little bit here that that's a must for fundamentals. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I'm one of those. He loves me. And this is eternal life, John 17, 3, that you would know God and Jesus Christ, the one he sent to earth. Eternal life, what an awesome thing that God offers and I have that. How dare I keep it to myself? People have sinned, including me. And what's the result of that? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God's eternal life. <laughs> you, ever, you ever stop after 20 or 30, or I see a few snow in the mountains out there, and I'm thinking uh, maybe it's been 50 or 60 or 80 years you've been walking with Jesus. You ever think back and go, I was a sinner and God just wiped it clean. Every time I share the gospel, I remember that truth. I'm blown away by it. And then I share about Jesus as the only way to God and why, that's, why that is. And then talk about how he was born of a virgin, then he lived, then he died on the cross, and he was buried, and three days later he arose and he conquered sin and death and he offers eternal life. And every time I share that stuff, I remember, and I also know that it's the thing that they need more than anything. More than their felt need, more than their fears, they need God's love and forgiveness. And then you walk through, maybe it's John 1:12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. A simple crying out, Romans 10, 9 and 10. For if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved because it's with your heart you believe and are justified and with your mouth you confess and are saved. Well, let me just tell you, every time I share God's word and the truth of that moment of accepting Christ, you know what I remember? I remember being four years old and knowing I needed Jesus. And then I remember at about 18 just turning 18, having a moment where after some apologetics and some discussion with God himself and wrestling with what I believed, I said, God, I'm all in. I'm all in. And the blessing that has come into my life in that journey, and it has not all been easy, but it has been good. And so the gospel, when you share it, transforms people. I know you know this stuff, but here's the thing. I'm going to spend the next bit of time coaching you. That's my hope. How, how, do we, how do we do this great commission, great commandment, powered by the Holy Spirit? What do, how do we get the gospel? How do we engage with people? Well, when I start talking about the gospel, generally speaking in the churches, everyone suddenly becomes about the level of a grade nine girl who plays basketball or wants to. 
It's about that level. Excited, wanted to be better, really would be awesome, but scared to death, right? It's that sort of, I, I coach right from the pros all the way down to little kids. But grade mind's my favorite. It's that great hormonal disorder that, that, that trying to figure out their body and their emotions and their, you know, it's all chaos. But I love that they're so teachable and given some freedom how fast they transform. And so I'm, I'm gonna share with you one of the drills I do right at the very, very beginning when I meet my team. And so sometimes I'm there for the, um, the, the, the tryouts and I get to be part of it, but every once in a while I'll help a team out and they will ask me to coach. And the, at Trinity Christian School my first year, I, I should explain this, little grade nine girl team. Uh, I was traveling with the pro team and then I had a conference I spoke at and I came and the very first day they meet their coach. I, I don't know any of them. And I want to transform this group of girls into a group, a community, and a team that is well-oiled, confident, super skilled. I'm gonna teach them everything they need. But here's how we start. I, I run a couple of drills so that I can see who the leader is. And then I put the, I go, okay, we're gonna go over here on the side and I, hopefully you know basketball enough where, where it's sort of just below half court and they're lined up each with a ball and I put the, the, the leader in front and I go, okay, when I give you your instruction, you're gonna do exactly what I've said. Pardon me for a moment. The, uh, the allergies keep kicking in. I don't actually care about you guys, but somehow I'm. <laughs> so I line them up and I say, okay, here's what I want. When the first girl does what I'm about to ask you, she finishes, goes over there, she waits in line. I don't want a lot of talking. Next girl goes, does exactly what the coach says. And when you're all done, I'm gonna have a conversation with you. So here's what I want. I need you to start to dribble and then I want you to double dribble, then pick up the ball, run out of bounds, travel, throw an air ball, grab the ball off the wall, go stand over there, go. And they look at me like you're looking at me. They're like, but they do it, right? Because I'm pretty uh, motivational and they go and, and then eventually, you know, eventually some girl hits the rim accidentally. Oh, sorry, coach, you know, and, and then they line up. And I go, how many of you double dribbled? Oh, coach, you said what? I, no, no, put your hand up. How many of you double dribbled? How many of you traveled? Put your hand up. How many of you guys went out of bounds and then chucked an air ball? Did I yell at you or demean you? Did I scream at you and tell you how, com how incompetent you are? No, I didn't nor will I ever. And I'm going to help coach you, and I pray that you will learn with the fundamentals and confidence, and you will become such a good player that you rarely dribble, double dribble, go out of bounds, make a bad pass, shoot an air ball, do something wrong. But if you try your very hardest and you learn the things you have to learn, you're going to make some mistakes. And when that happens... I will not demean you or put you down. I am your biggest fan. I am here to coach because I love you and I want you to succeed. And let me tell you, in that moment, I got a group of ferociously free grade nine girls. 
And then I teach him one more thing before we go into the really hard work and we work our tails off and I teach him all kinds of fundamentals and we are amazing by the end of every single year. But the other thing that I teach them, I go, I don't want you to ever trash talk anyone. It's my gym, I'm in charge. And no one here talks down to the opponent, to your teammate, to the referees, to the fans, to the, no one. And there's one more person you are not allowed to speak down to. Any guesses? Yourself. And because they're grade nine girls, they believe me when I say, and I can read minds. (laughs) And when I hear you think those thoughts, there's going to be some kind of crazy punishment. And so they start to run drills and eventually, you know how it is, you can see when a grade nine girl makes a mistake and has shame, it's like, you know, written on a billboard. Of course, I read her mind and so I blow the whistle and I go, okay, everybody get on the line. So I get them on the baseline and I go, when I say go, I want you to give me everything you got, everything you got. I want you to run from there to there and back, go. And they don't know what to do with that because it's only like a foot and some run and some stand and they just... And I go, you know what? There is going to be some discipline if I catch you talking down to yourself. But most of the hurt you're doing is to yourself. Because the message you're giving yourself is going to stop you from being all that you are supposed to be as a person as well as a basketball player. And we start there and then I give them fundamentals. And they get so grounded in the fundamentals, they don't have to think about it. And now they're totally free to just fly up and down the floor. And I don't teach them a bunch of plays. I teach them how to play. And they become champions off the court. The crazy thing is they also become champions on the court ridiculously amount of times. Why do I tell you all the basketball stuff? How do I compare that strong, athletic young man to a grade nine girl playing basketball when it comes to the gospel? Because most people sitting in the pew want to share their faith. They want to help others know freedom and hope and joy. And they want to be better, and yet they're terrified of making a mistake. First thing you need to know that God is the greatest coach ever. And like me, in a tiny way, the God of the universe, when you want to do your best and try and get better at sharing your faith, he loves you and he will not demean you or put you down when you blow it. What he wants is for you to get freedom and hope. And let me give you this phrase, for the rest of your life, can you do everything, including witnessing, from acceptance, not for acceptance. Is that not this terrifying moment when you're trying to get acceptance by doing something? The God of the universe has accepted you fully, uncompromisingly, unconditional love, and he goes, I am for you. And when it comes to sharing your faith, he goes, I'm with you. Let's do this. They need to hear what you have to share. What are the, what's the goal? Is it not the goal as believers to bring glory to God and to have as many of us that were created by him to spend eternity with him, 
with us. So what are the fundamentals of sharing your faith? Well, let's, let's talk through it for a minute. It starts, by the way, with a deep understanding that you need to be filled with the Spirit. It's a simple thing. And I didn't share this earlier because I didn't have as much time as I can squeeze out it to the second service. But it says that you need to be filled with the Spirit. It's a command and it's a promise that if you ask anything according to his will, he'll hear you. So it's simply going, Lord Jesus, I have the Holy Spirit. Would fill me, direct me, empower me. Know that he's with you. When I'm sitting there and I'm about to preach to a room full of strangers, I go, God, I don't know them, but you know them. I want to be obedient, guide my tongue, guide my mind, but God, help me be effective. That's what you pray. And you trust that the Holy Spirit will give you power. Isn't that what God said he would do? You got to know your Bible. You got to know the verses that are in there that change people's lives. They're anxious. So you go, oh, hey, you know what? There's this great verse in Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's not my word. I'm being like Jonathan. I'm going to somebody and I'm going, hey, this is God's word. This is what he said. And so know your Bible. Get the verses that are in the gospel. What, what's the message? What, which ones do you need to know? Get them in your head. What if you don't have a Bible? What if you got 15 minutes with Mike at a table? Well, Mike, there's a verse in there, but I'm not sure what it says. And there's another verse and it's sort of, well, it kind of says this. And do you want to know Jesus? I mean, God could probably even use that. But really, get to know the verses. Pray. Pray a lot. Pray with them. Pray for them. I, I, I said in the first service, I've asked a, a stupid amount of people. I don't even know the number. Can I pray for you? I've had one guy in his office say, please don't. It makes me anxious. I'm afraid of it. But when you leave my office, can you pray for me every day? I need it. That's one. Every other person, regardless of their faith journey, said yes. Fellowship. You remember I talked about David and Jonathan? I talked about my little grade nine girls team. We need to be supportive. We need to not beat each other up. We got to start to live in such a way that we help each other grow got to be with each other stop with the pretend and start to find real fellowship somebody else can have a wobbly pop and watch sports you can have a real conversation I'm not saying that wouldn't be fun and I do that on occasion but what you want is a deep meaningful real fellowship so be intentional be it go and find it and witness share your faith share the gospel get after it you see, God did everything he could so that people might be free. And somehow in his wisdom, and he's God, so he must know, he's decided to use you and I as the messengers of the good news so that they no longer hide and live broken and crying.
crushed by sin and fear and guilt and shame. You and me. We're his hands and feet and we're his mouth and we're his heart. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you two stories. The first one's nice and simple. The next one, I'd say, buckle your chin strap. Three weeks ago, I, I got to meet a young couple, Steve and Joanna Can. And the year before I got a chance to talk to Mike Vogt, I talked to Steve Can, and Steve Can came to Christ. He knew nothing about the gospel. I got to mentor him, and then his girlfriend, Joanna, had, had come to Christ, had some funny ideas. She came down to Calgary, and we, we went through some spiritual training, some Bible training, and then they got married, and he went to play pro and pro volleyball in Europe. And I have not seen them since, 27, what are you, 26 years? 27 years ago. And I got invited to their house in, in Kelowna three weeks ago. And I got to meet their family. And we had this incredible conversation. And they were telling their kids, 14, 12, and 10, three of the most dynamic Christian young boys you've ever seen, okay? The 14-year-old had... had shared with his friend, brought him to Christ, and they started going to church. Now that kid's family's going to church. Steve and Johanna are talking about their kids. This is how we came to Christ. They're the first believers in both family trees. Can you imagine being a spiritual grandparent? How many grandparents do we got here? Put your hand up. Okay, so if I meet you, I know what's gonna happen. We're gonna be like, I wanna talk about something else, and you're gonna go, hey, uh, hey, did you see these pictures of my grandkids? Right? They're fired up. They're going to be like, oh man, we got to, because it's pretty exciting to have legacy. Can you imagine what it would be like if you were willing to grow, to get the fundamentals, to let the Holy Spirit guide you and you started to share and then somebody comes to Christ and then they get married and they lead their kids to Christ. And those kids lead other people to Christ. And then they have kids and they lead them to Christ. And there's this legacy. And you go to heaven. And you get to heaven. And you get to meet great, great, great grandkids. Because you had enough boldness empowered by the Holy Spirit to share the good news. So I'm going to try and motivate you a bit, if it isn't already there. Pardon me. <clears throat> In 1980, there was an 8.1 earthquake in Armenia. And when the earth quit shaking after four minutes, a, a man left his wife securely at home, and he started running to the school where his son was. And as he's running to the school... He's thinking about the conversation he has with his boy, Armand. Every single morning of school, they would walk arm in arm. And at some point in the journey, he would look at his son and say, Armand, no matter what, I will always be there for you. And Armand's father gets to the corner of the rise of the hill and looks down where the school is supposed to be. And all there is is a flat pile of rubble. And he remembers that his son's class is at the far back right corner on the lower floor and he runs there and he starts to dig. 
Other parents show up and they're screaming and crying and clutch their chest. And then they see him and they start yelling and swearing at him and going, leave them alone, they're dead. And every single time he was interrupted, that man would get up and he'd go, are you gonna help me now? And then he would keep digging. The fire chief showed up and he said, sir, you, you gotta stop. There's fires breaking out everywhere. Go back to the living and leave the dead. To which Armand's father said, are you going to help me now? And he kept digging. And that man dug for two hours, which turned into four hours, eight hours, 16 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours. On the 38th hour of digging through this broken concrete, he moves a piece with his bloody hands. He shifts it and he hears his son's voice. Armand! It's me, dad. I knew you'd come. I told every kid in here that you would show up. How is it, son? Dad, there's 28 of us, 32, still alive. Two, two walls fell together and protected us and we're tired and cold and hungry and we're so glad to see you. And he moves some more rubble and he says, come on out, son. And the boy goes, no, dad, let's get these other kids out first because I know you'll be there for me. It's the kind of dad I want to be. I'm going to tell you that. Do my best, but I'm not omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent. But I tell my kids about the one who is their heavenly father that is all that. And I think we need to have a little more grit in our world in terms of our commitment on the human level. But on the spiritual level, let me challenge you a little bit. Those kids in that rubble, they're a great representation of how people are, aren't they? They're alive and yet they're dead. They're hidden. They, they have been hurt and damaged. They've done their own sin. They've got all kinds of junk that get between them and life. They need to know Jesus. Somebody needs to get messy and pay a price and be intentional and get into their life and do some digging and go, let me get you out of there. So I'm asking you two questions. The first one is from me. You see, I'm 56, going to be 57 in September. I figure I got about 30 good years left. And I'm one guy. And there are millions of people, and you know people I will never meet. Are you going to help me now? Empowered by the Spirit, are you going to do your part to bring good news to a broken world. And that's a pretty minor question. But let me ask you a bigger question. And you see, this question's coming from somebody who created all people, loved them desperately, let them go their own way, make a decision, and they're broken. And he came and he got bloody hands and he did whatever it took to make a way for them out. Only somehow he's decided that he's going to 
get the message of his glory and his forgiveness and his hope and his everything. He's going to get that out through you and me. And so the God of the universe and his son Jesus are asking you this question. Are you going to help me now? Are you going to help me now? Are you willing to get past being scared and afraid of not getting it all right? And are you willing to do the hard work, empowered by the Spirit, and be courageous so that people will know We're going to go into communion now because I think this is the greatest place to end this because you see, just like sharing the gospel reminds you of the good things that are true of your salvation and relationship with God, this is the cornerstone because it reflects us to the God that we love, his sacrifice so that you might be free. Would you grab your communion elements this morning? Jesus, I'm mindful that the bread that we hold in our hand, it's a symbol of your life laid down. We are broken people with no means of salvation, with no path to be restored to a holy God, except for the price that you chose to pay on Calvary's cross. And this bread that we take here at this time, Lord, we know is a symbol of the decision you made to lay down your life as a sacrifice for us so that we can be restored to a holy God. Would you take the bread and eat this morning? And Lord, this cup is symbolic of your blood. On the cross and in the events that preceded it, you were humiliated, you were scourged, you were tortured and you bled on our behalf. You bled. And the scriptures tell us that salvation is in the blood. And it is only through the bloodshed of an innocent that we can have our covering or a removal of our sins. And Lord, this cup this morning is a symbol of that price which you've chosen to pay. Would you take the cup this morning? <laughs>